Marissa Kwiatkowski is an investigative reporter for the Indianapolis Star. Her story, The Exorcisms of Latoya Ammons, was published in January of this year. Since then, she's been getting bombarded with feedback from around the world. She says she still has people contacting her at least once a week about the story that she published over 10 months ago. And last week, I was one of those people. Here's Kwiatkowski with the story's background. The story follows a woman named Latoya Ammons who claimed that she and her children were possessed by demons, and she tried to seek help through a number of different avenues before ultimately taking her children to the doctor, and the doctor didn't believe her, and her children at the doctor's office ended up acting out or transported to the hospital where a registered nurse in the Department of Child Services caseworker saw one of her sons walk backwards up the wall and then flip over his grandmother. That particular incident spurred a Department of Child Services investigation. DCS removed Ammon's children. The police began investigating, too, and then the Catholic Church got involved. The Diocese of Gary, Indiana, sanctioned a series of exorcisms. Six months later, the children were returned to Ammon's, and Kwiatkowski says there hasn't been any reported problems since. This week's theme is housing horror stories. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE with you on your beat for over 30 years. On this episode, we'll look at two different but perhaps equally chilling stories involving housing. First, we'll hear more from Marissa Kwiatkowski on how she reported on the official investigation of an Indiana woman's claims of demonic possession in her house. After that, American banker reporter Kate Berry will explain how to find zombie foreclosures, cases where homeowners thought they'd put their foreclosed homes behind them, only to learn that their bills hadn't in fact disappeared and they're hit with gigantic bills from their mortgage servicer saying you owe 350000 on back taxes, payments, and insurance for the homes. All that and more coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. Before she was an investigative reporter for the Indianapolis Star, Marissa Kwiatkowski spent seven years at the Times of Northwest Indiana. After she left the Times, a police source from that area contacted Kwiatkowski about a story she might be interested in, one involving paranormal activity. But unlike most ghost stories, this one came with public records. Kwiatkowski checked out the police department's files to see what she was getting herself into. After that, she tracked down Latoya Ammons, the woman at the heart of the story, to see if she'd be willing to talk. Not only was Ammons willing to talk, she signed a waiver of confidentiality, releasing all of her medical records, as well as records created by the Department of Child Services investigation. You see, Ammons didn't live in this house by herself. She also had three children, and they were part of the story too. Kwiatkowski explained to me how she set up her story in a way that relied on documentable evidence. The story wasn't about whether or not Latoya Ammons and her family truly experienced demonic activity, but rather how the police, state workers, and other community members reacted to her claims. They handled her case differently from how other cases have been handled in the past, namely that coming from a place of believability, they believed that um, most of the officials connected to this case believed that she was in fact possessed by demons and that her children had in fact been possessed by demons. So 
Um, that was my interest, but there was definitely a level of skepticism from the general public after it ran, but um, even with my editors, you know, they wanted to be sure because obviously, you know, in Indianapolis Star, it's our reputation on the line, so we had to really wait until we had as many records as possible and, and wrote it in a way that didn't, you know, either claim that they were making it up or claim that they were right and that they were possessed by demons. We really just played it straight and let people decide for themselves whether or not it was true. Kwiatkowski said she bulletproofed this story the same way she would any other, by triple-checking the facts line by line. And while the topic of the story may have been out of the ordinary, the reporting process was also fairly routine. She identified key documents and had Ammon sign a waiver to release them. She interviewed police officers, clergy members, relatives, Ammons herself, and others. And in some cases, the officials who talked weren't just staking their professional reputations, there were also potential legal consequences. A lot of these records were filed in court. And, you know, people were questioning whether people just made it up in those court records. And I would say, you know, to those people that falsifying court records, you can face criminal charges. And so, you know, is it true or is it not true? I'll leave that for others to decide. But I will tell you that the officials who filled out those forms did believe that what they were writing was accurate. In addition to some of the skepticism Kwiatkowski mentioned, there was also an enormous amount of feedback after the story ran. While the reporting process was somewhat standard, Kwiatkowski said the response to the story was a new experience entirely. The article went viral. It went international. I was getting calls from, you know, Germany, Australia, Brazil, um, from people who are interested in it and getting emails and phone calls from all over the country. Even still to this day, I'm still getting calls and emails at least once a week. There was a huge outpouring of interest in it probably because it is a little bit off the wall. The piece was shared over 65,000 times on Facebook alone and has over 200 comments on the story page itself. It is the most viewed online story in Indianapolis Star history. I was just one of the many emails and calls Kwiatkowski still receives, but she responded to me as she apparently does to everyone. Well, I have a rule, which I slightly questioned after uh, all of this came out, but I try and return every phone call and email even if it's a critical one, I, I respond to it to, you know, let people know that I appreciate that they're reading our work and that they're, you know, invested enough, good or bad, to respond to it and answer questions where I could. So I pretty much disappeared to a certain degree for the few weeks after the article ran because I was so busy returning phone calls and emails. And while Kwiatkowski was busy answering questions from eager readers, some other media outlets were busy too. But because only Kwiatkowski had the confidentiality waiver from Latoya Ammons, there wasn't much for other outlets to report. But that certainly didn't stop some of them. We saw a lot of people just, you know, blanket taking information from my article without attribution or without proper attribution or maybe they, you know, attributed it at the very, very end. Um, after having copied the entire article on their page and, you know, using our photos. So we decided to be playful with it and just um, provide links to the other people and circling them back to us to say, hey, you know, if you want the full accurate version, you know, that has been solidified by records and all of those things, you know, come to us. But if you want to see how other people 
address the same piece. Here you go. Take a look. The linked list Kwiatkowski is talking about is called How Other Outlets Handled the Exorcisms of Latoya Ammons, and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. The list links to 13 different takes on the story, and it's a really interesting kind of mini-media study. To give you an idea of what the linked list is like, one of the more tame headlines of the group is The Devil and Latoya Ammons. That article quotes the first three paragraphs of Kwiatkowski's story and then links right to the full story. A few other headlines, though, really jumped on calling Ammon's former home a portal to hell. Now, that phrase is mentioned in Kwiatkowski's story, but it comes from a Lake County police report where a priest instructed officers to look for signs, such as chalk pentagrams drawn in the basement. Those would indicate the home has a possible portal to hell. The officers did not find any such indications. And when it comes to any claim, and especially something like portals to hell, the distinction between reporting one exists and reporting a priest was looking for one but didn't find it is, well, a big one. And that's part of the frustration of having a story take on a life of its own. Just because you report what police actually did find in the basement, some candy wrappers and old campaign pins, it doesn't stop others from slapping portal to hell on their headlines. Dealing with the overwhelming response to this story in a similarly light-hearted way, Kwiatkowski has a line, not the demon reporter, in her Twitter bio. Kwiatkowski has been an investigative reporter for over a decade, but she said it's this story for which she is most well-known. So, which story would she rather be known for? There was a series that I did for the Times of Northwest Indiana when I was there, where I looked at the difficulties of children with mental illnesses and developmental disabilities to get access to the services that they needed. And as a result of that series, state officials pledged $25 million a year to close the gap in mental health services in Indiana. So... Um, I, I guess I'd say I'd probably prefer to be known for that kind of work, you know, whether it's that particular series or not, because that's a lot of what I do is giving voice to the people who don't have uh, voices for themselves. The links to both Kwiatkowski stories, the exorcisms of Latoya Ammons for the Indianapolis Star, and her coverage on mental health services for children for the Times of Northwest Indiana are in our show notes. And to close the Latoya Ammons story, Kwiatkowski says there's been no further reports of problems from the Ammons family following the exorcisms, and no reports from the new residents of Ammons' former home. Kate Berry is a consumer finance reporter for American Banker. In March of this year, she covered how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau sought to protect homeowners from zombies, more specifically zombie foreclosures. It was part of her ongoing reporting on the subject. Here's Barry explaining how that process works. A bank decides to foreclose on a home. They send the borrower, you know, 50 letters telling the borrower to get out of the home. The borrower leaves. Then the bank decides the home is not really worth that much money and they don't want to take title to the home. So they don't take title and the, the home sits there. The home doesn't go on the market, it's just sitting there vacant. Barry this summer said there was an estimated 1 million homes owned by banks not on the market and about 35% were so-called zombie foreclosures. What's especially insidious about zombie foreclosures is that just because the bank isn't interested in taking or selling the house and the former owners can't live there doesn't mean people who have already defaulted on their mortgage are off the hook for paying it. The bank is still requiring that the borrower who left pay the mortgage, pay the taxes, pay the insurance, and upkeep the home. 
And sometimes the homeowners aren't even aware they're being charged. But then the bills come in, back from the grave, sometimes years after they've left the house. Barry says this has caused thousands of lawsuits all over the country. They've been out of the home for five years, seven years, and they're hit with gigantic bills from their mortgage servicer saying, you owe 350000 on back taxes, payments, and insurance for the homes. In addition to lawsuits between the former homeowners and mortgage services, Barry says useful information can be found by looking through SEC filings online. The banks themselves are not going to come out and say, here's, here's the number of of defaulted homes that we have on our balance sheets, but they have to report it in their SEC filing. So if you want to find out what's going on in your neighborhood, in your city, you go to the filings of the four largest banks, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. And the best place to look is in their 10K annual reports, their 10Qs, or their 8Ks. It's so much easier now. All you have to do is go to... Um, secfilings.com, stick in the ticker symbol, and you get automatic emails sent to your email on whenever filings come in. In those filings, Barry recommends looking at the risk factors section in particular and all the footnotes for potentially newsworthy information. Links to Barry's work and the SEC websites are in our show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney.